beautiful uh, work of God in creation and in human beings. And that video serves as a lead-in to the starter verse that I want to focus on this morning from the book of Ephesians. And so we're doing a mini-series of messages in Ephesians these next few weeks, starting with uh, this message, Ephesians uh, chapter 2 today, verse 10, as a starting point. So I'd encourage you to find that in your Bible. If you haven't brought a Bible with you, uh, grab one of the Bibles that we've made available for you. It's red. It's in one of those uh, pockets in front of you below. Uh, Grab one and find the book of Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, and find chapter 2, verse 10. We'll start with that first verse. For we are God's masterpiece, and different translations will use different words uh, in that word for the word masterpiece. Handiwork, workmanship, the same ideas there is present in each of them. We are God's work. We are his creation. Uh, He has created us physically. He's created the universe above us, around us. He has created us physically, and according to the gospel of Jesus, he recreates human beings in, the, in, in Christ when they are believing in Jesus, when we come to faith in him. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. That's spiritual life. That's the new birth. So he's done it for a reason, not just because he could, not just because he wanted to do that, but in part so that we can do good things or good works that he planned for us long ago. You know, it's important that you and I embrace that truth, a couple truths here. Our identity, first of all, as believers. Why is that? Well, because, well, who wants to live a life that you weren't called to live? You know, I don't. I want to live out the fullest version, the best version of the life that I've been given, this one and only life, not just physically, uh, my physical life, but my spiritual life. I want my life to have counted in, in very significant ways when it's all said and done. And, and I want to live in my true identity, and that is my identity is as a child of God. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a follower of the King. And I want to know what those good things are or good works that he's called me to do. He's called each of us to do. And it is so important that we pay attention to those good works, those good things that he calls us to do. For, for one reason is this one. People around you need you to be participating in the good works that God's called you, you to do uniquely. You know, people go through this life uh, tragically sometimes with so much trouble and sorrow. You know, I had a light moment this week, a couple of them, where I got to visit uh, families that had babies in the hospital. That's always fun to make those visits. And yet, you know, as you hold that little child, I have to get back to reality. I got to go back to work. I got to go here, here and deal with other much more difficult things than, than welcoming a baby to the world. As a pastor, I'm familiar with just a little bit of the struggle of so many good people And I want to tell you this from my heart. For so many people, life is crueler than death. And I know that sounds kind of somber, but there's there's, there's just a lot of reality to that. A lot of tough days for all of us, but some people really are agonizing their way through life. And when you and I, as people of faith in Christ, can realize our identity is to not only to to, to be embraced by God and his love, but to share it and to do good works around us. We can bring hope and encouragement to people. Even today, wherever you're sitting in a restaurant or wherever you might do business later, whoever you greet at your job, in small and simple ways, you can do things that, that just show the life of Christ within you. You really can, and it matters. You're called to do that. I'm called to do that. 
And so the question I want to put before you today is this one as a starter point. How is your life giving evidence that Christ is living in you? If he lives in you, how does your life demonstrate it? Because it should. It really should demonstrate good works, according to the verse we're starting with, Ephesians 2.10. If I'm a Christian, there should be evidence of it. There should be proof of it. James, in the first chapter of his book, said, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He didn't mean you didn't live in the world, but he said, don't be just of the world, but serve and be about the needs of people. That's a good work, isn't it? Those are just a couple of examples. I don't think I have to convince anybody here of the this point that I'm going to make. We're living in a world, a time in history, perhaps more than any other would be my guess, where there's just a lot of superficiality. There's a lot of sensuality. There's a lot of self-centeredness. Now, I'm not picking on you. I have to preach this message to myself before I can ever bring it to you. You know, if I can be honest with you this morning, I think you'd want me to be honest with you. I was honest with the first service, and they said they were glad. I see in my own life, at times, incredible amounts of self-focus. Self, self-awareness is one thing, but self-focus, where it's easy to be consumed with comforts and, and creature comforts or desires or agendas. And I have to really look at myself in the mirror and say, you know, whose agenda am I serving today? The king's or mine? And it's so easy. I default naturally to myself, to selfishness. And the culture encourages that. The culture that we're living in encourages self-centeredness. It encourages selfishness. It encourages sensuality constantly. And, and it's hard not to let that come into your life and your mind in some form and fashion. And yet we come back to this verse of Ephesians 2.10 and we realize, God, you have called me to do good works for other people, not to just be about myself and my needs, my, my life. You know, Jesus... Christ didn't give his life for me, for you, to live a superficial life. He didn't give his life for you, for you to live a sensual life that's just about getting the next whatever, bad experience with with inappropriate stuff, you know, with purity. He didn't live, he didn't die for you for that. He didn't die for you to to just be a self-centered person. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse... 11. And Paul tells us in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2 what good God has done for us. Before we do good works for others in God's name, it's good to be reminded of what good has been done to us. Therefore, he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's all of us who are not Jewish by ancestry, he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. That's what the Jews of Paul's day called people like us. They said, ooh, that's the uncircumcised group. He says, you remember by those who, those who called you this, which is made the circumcision which is made in the flesh, end of chapter, or verse 11. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Gentiles, non-Jews, throughout human history have had lots of gods, just not the right one, just not the true God. And Paul is reminding his first century listeners who were not Jewish, they were like us, they were Gentiles, he's saying, you need to remember where you've come from. 
You were strangers to the promises that God made to his people, to Israel. The covenant wasn't given to you. And, and those people themselves looked down on you. They called you the uncircumcised, you, you Gentiles. And he says, God has brought you near. But he says, you had no hope. But look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not by your own doing, not by meriting it, not by deserving it, but the blood of the Son of God, of the Prince of Glory, was spilled out for you. And now you've been brought into a family. You've been united to the life of God. Never get over that. If you're in Christ, please, never get over that. And then, and then this blood that forgives your sins is also this, it's the precursor to a relationship with Jesus. And verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one. He's saying God has brought together Jew and Gentile. Those who are in Christ from Jewish, the Jewish nation or the Gentile people are now one. He's broken down in his flesh. The flesh of Jesus uh, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Paul is talking about reconciliation there, isn't he? In Christ of Jew and Gentile. That's, being, that's the interpretation of this text. But this text has, that's the interpretation. It also has applications. God is a uniter, obviously, from this text. You know what else he's uniting? He's not just interested in uniting Jew and Gentile. He's interested in uniting races, black with white. He's interested in uniting the rich and the poor. He's interested in uniting all people. In Christ, we become one. That's what God's doing. He's this great uniter who's uniting individuals with himself, but then with others, and he wants us to be reconcilers. Going back to Ephesians 2.10, he wants us to do good works in his name, and those good works take many forms. Let's finish this little passage. Verse 17, and he came, Jesus came, and he preached peace. He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. God is a uniting God. He's a reconciler and he sent his own son to this world which would spit on him and would scorn him and would hang him on a cross and God knew all of that beforehand and he said, you know, I love him enough. I'm going to let him do it. I'm going to let him kill him and I'm going to raise him back to life and all who will believe on him, on my son, will have their sins forgiven, past, present, and future. Verse 18, for through him we both have access, Jew and Gentile, both. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, here's my conclusion, he says. It's his kind of preliminary conclusion. You, as a Gentile, are no longer a stranger and an alien, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is your new identity in Christ. You're built up. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, I'm licking my finger to move the page. I don't want to do that with an iPad. Um, it might not even turn then. Uh, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's go back to that verse again for just a moment. I hope that you see the theme in the verses we just read, that God is a uniting God. He's bringing races together. First of all, he's bringing people together to himself. He's reconciling people, individuals, to himself through, 
faith in Christ. But he wants that to go beyond that. He wants to unite. The book of Revelation says that when we get to glory, we are going to see people there from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Our God is uniting God. And he calls us to be a people who unite others with him and that we live in unity with one another. Please see that coming through here in the book of Ephesians. So backing up to verse 10 again, which is on your screen, hopefully open in your Bible, I want you to look at the word, or the two words, good works or good things. What do you suppose those are? Well, they, there are many things, aren't there? there? There'll be some opportunities that most of us will have today to explore this, to apply this. The Lord will create split-second opportunities for you to do something that would be a genuine act of kindness, of love, of service to somebody. He'll give you that opportunity today, maybe countless times, more than once. And so we can look at this very generally, but there's something very specific that I'm going to be pointing you to, a good work, one specific one that I want you to see today, and I'm not going to tell it all to you just yet. We're going to get there. Let me first of all just kind of put a little uh, cautionary statement out there. When we talk about good works, we're not talking about earning our way to heaven. I want to just double down on that. I want to be really careful that we don't have a wrong idea of good works. Because humanly, we are, we are predisposed, if you will, to not only feel good about doing something good for somebody, that's okay, but we think it merits us something, especially spiritually. We tend to think it merits a special access to God. I can't tell you how many times, dear people, good people, have said to me in my office when I asked them this big question, what, if you were to die today and God were to, you were to stand before God, why do you think he should let you into heaven? I can't tell you how many times I've heard the same old answer because I've lived a pretty good life. I've done more good things in my life than bad things. And I, I say, you know, that would be just wonderful if God graded on the curve. <laughs> but he doesn't. You've got to be 100% perfect and pure. And that's none of us. You need something better than your good works. Good works, they make us feel good. But they, can, they, they do not produce salvation. They are subsequent and resultant of God. Their God-empowered fruits and evidences of salvation, right? And so our best efforts to reach God, to work our way to heaven, to put it that way, amounts to jumping off a diving board positioned on the Grand Canyon, thinking you're going to get to the other side. You're just never going to make it. Whether it's philosophy the world's wisdom, whether it's a, as, as a way to try to work your way to God or, or religion or good works or uh, what else could we throw in there? Whole kinds of little ideas of how we're going to work our way to heaven. It's like jumping off of a diving board over the Grand Canyon. It's, it's, we're going to plummet. We're not going to go up. We're not going to reach the other side. And yet, sadly, good works are again and again so confused with spiritual merit, with having spiritual merit, a means of writing our ticket to heaven so to speak. Some of you might remember a few years ago when the, the great businessman Warren Buffett donated a ton of money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, very wonderful, very generous, only good things to say about that. But he said something kind of interesting. Here's what he said to quote Warren Buffett, quote, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. It isn't true. You could give everything you have to good causes, but it doesn't get you to heaven. But we tend to want to think that. We want to believe that. So the good work that needs to be done was done for us by Jesus Christ. He gave his life for us. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it. You can't add to his salvation. That's a separate message. I feel like I've, I've preached that one. But I just want to underscore that as we come into today's passage. 
there's no other name under heaven among men by which we can be saved than the name of Jesus. John wrote, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the irrefutable evidence of Scripture. We stand on that as a local church. And so when you accept the truth of who Jesus is and you believe in him, you repent of your sin and you turn to him, you get what Jesus won for you. You get what he won for you on that cross. When he spilled his blood out for humanity, you get the the effect of it. You get forgiveness when you trust in him for your forgiveness. You get a new standing with God. As for you, the Bible says, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, you were dead. You were spiritually dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. God has saved us from so much trouble. He has saved us for eternity. He saved us for a better life on this side of heaven. He has reconciled us. He has justified us. We are accepted in the beloved, the Bible says, through faith in Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about your identity today. If you're in Christ, I want you to just think in fresh terms about that beautiful truth that you have a new identity. You are a child of the living God. You are a son or daughter of the King. You are accepted in the beloved no matter how you feel. Even if you don't feel accepted, even if you don't feel lovable, even if you don't feel like you're good enough, none of us are. But isn't it an amazing truth? You're accepted in the beloved. And you don't earn it. You just trust that's true because the Bible says it, because Jesus declared it, because God gave his son's life for you. And so don't lose the hope of that statement that you are accepted in the beloved. Hold on to that. Hold tightly to that truth. And, and remember this too. Through your relationship with Jesus, you can always have peace within doesn't mean you don't have bad days and you don't have things that trouble you. But peace, you don't have to live a life that's absent of peace. There will be times when peace might be a little hard to find. But you don't have to live a life that's without peace. And yet how many people today in modern culture are living lives that display there's probably a war within them? I mean, look at the drug epidemic in this country right now. That's a, that's a quest for peace. That's a quest for comfort because there's a lack of it because there's this huge lack. You know, I looked online at the, at the Health and Human Services website just to get some accurate, careful, up-to-date statistics on this opioid thing because we're hearing about it all the time. And I don't want to have my head in the sand. That's, I don't struggle with that one. But I know that people do, and I want to have an understanding. How big is this struggle? How big is this fight? In 2015, HHS says 12.5 million people misused prescription opioids. That's in 2015. It's gotten worse. 2.1 million people abused opioids for the first time in 2015. So that's double the population of our state, really probably triple. 828,000 people used heroin that year as a companion way to alleviate pain, and 13,000 of those died. Of all those who took opioids unlawfully, who used them, misused them in 2015, there were 60,000 deaths. And it hasn't gotten better in the last two years. Look at the news of the major cities in this country. Their morgues are, are, are overfilling with the bodies of people that are coming in, having abused a drug to try to find peace. Oh, if that doesn't rally your heart, to say, I want to be a messenger of hope to people. I don't want to just live for a self-centered life that just focuses on myself. In fact, I do want to live that way, but I shouldn't. 
because they're people that need the peace of God that's available to them through Jesus. But they need to see it in a person. They need to see people that put on a face, if you will, of love and encouragement to them. Because they know about Jesus, but they need to know Jesus through you, through me, through our lives. Jesus giving his life for us means that we have the ability to be peacemakers, to have peace, and to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, daughters of God. We're to make peace. But it all starts at home. Peace within the home, peace within a marriage, peace within a home life if you have a family, and peace within a church. If we're going to make peace out there with other people, but bring people together, help them to see Jesus, it really needs to begin with us right now, right here, right where we are. Christ wants us to be peacemakers. And let's come back to that verse again and look again at the good things or the good works. It's translated both ways in different translations. It means the same thing. I want to highlight from the context of the book of Ephesians, specifically chapter 2 and 4, one of the good things that God has planned for us. So there's, it's a general thing. God's, you know, there's a lot of good things he'll have us do. But I want to give you a specific thing from the text here of Scripture. The main theme tying together chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, is unity. God calls us to live out the unity that he's given us with each other in front of a watching world. Let me tell you why that's so important. When a local church is united... That doesn't mean uniformity. That doesn't mean there's no diversity. That doesn't mean there's never disagreement. I don't mean that. The Bible doesn't mean that when it talks about unity. But it does mean that we all wear the same uniform here. We're, we're, we're all under the blood of Jesus if we're saved. We are in Christ. And when we live that out, when we accept the unity that we have with one another and we serve the king together that way, the world around us, the city around us, the workplaces around us, they get a real portrait, a real picture, an object lesson, if you will, of what God is like through our diversity. They get a glimpse that, gee, God is a forgiving God. God is a generous God. You know, all the people, I was telling a business leader in town here yesterday about the car clinic that happened a month ago or so, about all the people that, that some of the men of this church served. We, I think we had 30-some people or cars we worked on and people. And I said, and there were just tears. I said, it was such a ministry. And this businessman said, how can I get involved? I'd like to, I didn't know about that. I'd like to do something. And it was, just, it was just exciting. But as we simply do the good works that the Lord puts on our hearts to do for others, and we do it for him, not for us, and we do it for others, not for us, the world around us gets a picture of what God is like, that he's generous, that he's forgiving, that he, he, he builds up the brokenhearted, that he cares about people. But if we don't dwell in the unity that he's given us, if we refuse it, we say, well, that's not easy. Of course it isn't. What's easy in life? But that's not fun. That's not always, I don't want to live in unity with my spouse or with this church member or, or here, you, you name the context. You know what happens? When we refuse to live in unity because of our stubbornness or whatever our personal problem is with that, we really are, are sacrificing the clear picture, the portrait that God wants this church to be for the world. We're, we're really, we're, we're stepping on it. We're, we're, we're resisting it because the world will look at it and say, what? I don't know about that. All I hear about there is, is this and this and this. I don't see fruit or good things. I don't know. God's like that. I don't think I want to know much about him. Do we see the import here of pulling together? Do we see the import of being one? 
And we already are one in Christ. We're already united. We just have to keep embracing that, accepting that, and working through the, the, the ups and downs that go along with that so we can remain that object lesson for the world. Now, let me just be real clear. The unity that the Bible talks about is a gift. We don't have to earn it. It's, it's given. Jesus Christ has united us. If you're in Christ, you're united with every other believer in the world, in history, that is in Christ. I think of that. That's a gift. But it's also a task, and that's what I've been alluding to. We've got to own that. We've got to respect that. We need to honor that. We need to work with that. If, I've seen too many couples come up here and get married, and there's unity. And then a year or two later, sadly, I sometimes see their name in the paper. There's no more unity. They had unity. What happened? They didn't assume, somebody didn't assume the tasks that go with that. Or there was a failure in the tasks. Now, that's not the unforgivable sin. But I tell you this, as a local church, if we just say, well, unity is a gift, and I like to think about it, but I'm not worried about being a task, we're in danger of not really showing unity to the world, showing our love. Showing, showing who Jesus is to the world. And you know, here's the neat thing. We need everybody on this team to play because we all have different strengths, gifts, experiences. And so you can show a side of Christ I can't show. You can show a hope of Jesus or, or an act of, of kindness that I, someone else doesn't do as well. That's okay. None of us have all the gifts here. We're all uniquely gifted and qualified to serve the king together. And so when we serve him together, people stand up and they go, there's hope there. There's help there. There's a reason I'd want to go to that church, and it's pointing me up. It's pointing me to who God is, and it, people are drawn in to who Jesus Christ is. So we need to attend the task, don't we? We need to attend that task of guarding the unity that we have. And my screen doesn't want to go to the next one, so I guess I'm going to have to ask our... Oh, there it is. Uh, I'm going to give you some quick applications here in the time I have, and I want you to jump with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, so if we get it, we say, you know what, I get this. My roots need to go deep on this thing, this theme of biblical unity. I need to go deep in it. How do I do it? How do I build my commitment? First thing Paul says in Ephesians 4 is, is he said, be humble. Be humble and be gentle. I heard it said just recently, and I like this. It's kind of a pithy way of uh, saying it. Be humble, lest you stumble. Anybody ever stumble because they weren't humble? <laughs> Anybody ever get egg on your face because you really weren't humble and kind of, something kind of came back to you? Look at Paul says, Ephesians 4, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He's incarcerated as he writes this book. He literally was a prisoner. Uh, he says, and, and, and it's doulos is the Greek word. It means slave. I'm a slave for the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and he goes on to other things there but those are the first two things so we need humility with one another we need to keep that's that's easier said than done but we need to exude it we need to build on that we need to treat each other with humility do you want to have unity in your your family then be gentle the second word there that's that's part of the fruit of the spirit isn't it gentleness we looked at that over the summer months you want to have unity in your family be gentle if, if I walk into somebody's room in my home and say, get this cleaned up right now, I'm so... Is that gentle? Is that going to get the job done? Is that kind? Is that loving? Is it, if, if it's speaking the truth, it's speaking it without love. And so that's a, that's, a, that's a problem. But wouldn't it be better, better to say, man, I just love it. 
if we can get this cleaned up a little bit today, I'll help you. That's different, right? Different spirit. Completely different, and the result will be better. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It just gets us defensive. A soft answer. We're, not, we're, we're, we're to be truth tellers, and we're to speak the truth in love. We need to be gentle and humble. And bearing with each other in love, I came across a, a great quote here from a Reformation theologian. I'd never heard of him until this last week in my studies. His name was Caspar Olivanus. He was filled with faith and love, the love that God puts in our hearts towards the end of his life. I better move on here on my screen to the, the second one so that I'm in sync here. One second, there it is. Bear with one another in love. You see it in the text. Caspar Olivanus was filled with faith in the love that God had for him. In Jesus, in, in Christ, when his physical senses were almost too weak to perceive the world around him, Olivanus did not lose his grasp on the love of God. His dying testimony was, quote, my hearing is gone, my smelling is gone, my sight is going, my speech and feeling are almost gone, but the loving kindness of God is still the same and will never depart from me. God's love will never depart from his people. And everyone who's in Christ can remain true to that love of God, exhibiting it, showing that love. Don't, don't get far from that, from experiencing his love. Stay close to the love of God so that you can share it, no matter what's going on in the world around you. I think it means more to people when we love them when we're going through hard times ourselves than when things are just going great and we pat them on the back and say, God loves you, so do I. I think it means more to them when we love people when we're hurting, when we're suffering, and we're trusting in him that he's, his love isn't going to leave us, and so we can still love and serve other people. That's what we're called to do. That's a good work, isn't it? So the good work, going back to Ephesians 2.10, one of the good works that we're called to do, according to this con the context of Ephesians 2 and 4, is to accept the Bible's call to live in unity. Because that's all over this text. It's all over the place. And so if you, if you say, well, what's the good work? Well, before you think about serving your neighbor, remember this good work that the text is making very clear to live in unity with one another, with the Lord's people, with, with your mate if you're married, to live, to dwell together in unity, and then to discover the part you play. If you look at the latter part of Ephesians 4, let's pick it up here at verse, hmm, so many good places here. Where do I start? Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. Grace was given, not just the saving grace of our Lord when we become saved men and women. Grace is given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes on into a list of, of a subject matter, rather, of spiritual gifts. Therefore, it says, I'm going to jump ahead here because this gets kind of long. Let me jump over to verse 10. He who descended, Christ, is the one who also ascended, ascended to heaven, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things, and he gave, remember grace was the operative word there in verse 7, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 2.10, we're called to do good works. God says, I've equipped you to do it. I'm teaching you, I'm training you through the people, these offices that I've put up around you, building up the body of Christ. So where do you come in here? You come in significantly. You have a part to play. You have a spiritual gift. You have a role to play within the church and outside of it. Are you fulfilling it? Do you see it? 
And what's the purpose of it? Maturity. Look what happens. If we embrace our unity, we live in unity, you know what happens? And we serve the king together with our personal gifts, our time, our treasure, our talent, our testimony. We grow up spiritually. We become mature. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, that's all of us, every one of us is a ligament, is a joint, is a part of the unity of the body. It's a great metaphor, isn't it? Your human body is a unit. It's made up of many parts, but it, it holds itself together. And, and, and Christ's church is to be that way. So I'll start over at 16. I'm kind of excited here. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are poorer as a church without you. We are better as a church with you, with your participation, your unique role in the body here. We need you. We need one another. And as we grow in our unity together, we grow up in maturity. Nobody grows in isolation. God didn't design us to grow that way. And so we need a relationship. We need one another if we're going to serve the king well and if we're going to grow up. So at 1 o'clock this morning, sermon was well in hand. It better be by 1 a.m. on Sunday. But I woke up, and I thought... Ah, there it is, crystal, crystal clear. Not that I had a confusion about anything this message was about because it wasn't confusing to me. I hope it wasn't to you. But I, I came up with a three-point summary. Some of this is repetitive. And I wrote it down. It's not on your screen. It's not on the screen. But here's the summary here, wrapping it up. Three reasons we should value and embrace unity at FBC. Three reasons. Number one, Christ has won it for us at the cost of his life. Wow. It's a gift. He's won it for us. He's, he's united us. It's a gift. So now we want to we treasure it. We want to embrace it in real ways. That's number one. Christ has won unity for us at the cost of his life. Unity with God, unity with each other. Number two, our unity displays a living witness of Christ to the world. The unity of one local church displays a portrait, an accurate, beautiful portrait to the world of what God is like. Again, that he's loving, he's forgiving, he's restoring, he's serving, he's generous. As a church operates in unity, it exhibits the character of God to the world, and people look, whoa, that's real. That's authentic. That's, that's, that's great. I want to know that God. I want to I be a part of that family. Number three, our unity with one another is the key to our own personal spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. We saw that in the passage we just finished in Ephesians 4. None of us will mature alone. Isolation is the enemy of maturity. Divided we fall. United we stand. God, thank you for the blessing of family in Christ. Thank you for the diversity in the family. Thank you that we can, we're called to be interdependent and we can, we can learn so much from each other. And there's, there's nothing that... Uh, we, we want more, Lord, than to become more like you, more like your son. 
So would you help us today to take these next steps, whatever those look like in our individual lives, but, but to see, first of all, and to value unity, the identity we've already received, an identity of right standing with God, with, with a, a readiness for heaven, with our sins forgiven, with personal peace, with the ability to be peacemakers. And Lord, uh, help us to live out the life according to this new identity that we've been given, to, to treasure that, to treasure each other, I thank you for everyone in this room right now, Lord. So many I don't know, but I treasure them because you do. God, would you bless each each of us this week with a great understanding of our identity in you and our hope in you and our need for each other. And might we just continually lock hearts and arms together and serve you better in days to come, holding our unity so that the evil one can run and the world can get a clear picture of Jesus through the church that he died for. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us this morning.